0: Uh, thing people should know about you that they don't?
1: Um, I'm cuddlier than I come across. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic.
0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Human Element cares podcast on modern marketing. I'm so excited to have Max fly laban how i did all right there right absolutely it is not spelled quite like that but I, I phonetically i did okay he's the managing director and chief privacy officer at super awesome and he made time out of, out of his very tight schedule to do this today so thank you so much max
1: you're very welcome it's a pleasure to be here
0: so Let's jump in. Uh, For those people who don't know, what is Super Awesome and what are you guys kind of aimed at in the market?
1: So Super Awesome is a technology company that has a single mission, which is to make the internet safer for kids. Mm. And we do that in particular in the marketing channel. So Mm. we work with all the major kids' brands you can think of, lots of publishers, app developers, website owners, anyone that is looking to engage with kids uh, in the digital realm online. Uh, And we try to make those engagements safe. So what I mean by safe, safe yeah. is compliant with data privacy laws, mm-hmm. which are getting stricter and stricter around the world. And we can talk about what that means. Um, but we also make sure that the content they see is safe and appropriate for their age, um, and that any uh, other regulations like ad regulations, self-regulation, uh, is also observed when delivering advertising to kids. So we essentially try to empower with technology infrastructure the kids ecosystem of websites, apps, and the advertising that funds those things. So that's a pretty amazing mission, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, y- y-
0: you know, obviously those of us who are lay people look at uh, topics like brand safety and like, you know, we, we you, all you do is read about sort of the bad stories. How do you guys sort of make sure that those things don't happen? Um, like, and, and how difficult is that for kids?
1: Well, we work in a what is essentially a closed ecosystem, right? So we have relationships with tons and tons of great kids content creators, games, educational apps, brand websites, you name it, uh, where we know that the content creator is taking care to make sure that the content is appropriate on that one side, that's the supply side, if you like. On the other hand, we work with all the great kids' brands who want to advertise to kids, who want to engage with kids, who want to shift more of their marketing budget from TV to digital, because that's where the kids are going. Um, and so within that closed ecosystem, it's actually relatively easy mm. uh, to deal with brand safety issues because we're not trying to advertise on the entire internet. Yep. We're only advertising on or, or delivering ads on kids sites and apps. So your
0: role as chief privacy officer, what, what is sort of entailed uh, in that
1: role? So within Super Awesome, I kind of look after several different pieces of the business. I look after finance and operations um, and some parts of business development. But perhaps more interestingly for this conversation, I run our Kid Aware training and education program. Mm. And so KidAware is really our way of helping everyone in the kids industry to get smart about the do's and don'ts mm. of engaging with kids online and we do that from a very self-interested perspective because if everyone is comfortable engaging with kids online if people are not afraid of Mm. the regulation because sometimes it's complex it's a bit scary um if we can Uh, lower those fears and make people comfortable, then they will do more business. They will advertise more, they will create more websites, they won't be afraid to build new games for kids or educational apps for kids. And that's ultimately our objective because if, if there's more content for kids and more engagement, then we can sell more of our technology
0: of your sort of client population who who do you work with kind of the most on those topics you know is there a is it a gaming company or an entertainment company or kind of where you who are your sort of biggest uh, partners from a client perspective?
1: Well, we work with about 250, uh, brands, um, that are in the kids space, either what we call endemic brands. So that's every toy company you've ever heard of yep. every entertainment company that has a kids content focus that yep. you've ever heard of. Then we also work increasingly with what we call non endemic kids brands. So companies like, uh, I don't know, athletics, wear, personal care, travel, even automotive, you know, retail, All of these sectors are starting to realize that kids have tremendous influence on purchasing decisions. Um, They have increasing spending power of their own, Mm -hmm. Um, certainly uh, when it comes to clothing, personal care, accessories, et cetera, when they become tweens or teens, Uh, but also they have tremendous influence in the family home. We do quite a lot of primary research. So every month we poll thousands of kids and ask them lots of different questions to learn about what's hot, what are they watching, what devices are they using, uh, what are they doing online, et cetera. And one of the things that we ask them and we also ask parents is, you know, which categories of product do you influence in the home? And then we compare what the kids say versus what the parents say. <laughs> now, there's interestingly often. In not- my
0: house, it's always the same thing, <laughs> what the kids say and what the parents We're always on the same page.
1: Well, you would be surprised <laughs> that actually in, in most categories, there is actually not that much difference. Usually <laughs> five to ten points difference between those yep. two. But what you might uh, uh, be more surprised by is the degree to which kids influence purchasing decisions on regular products that have nothing to do with kids. Yeah, where the company goes on holiday, what toiletry brands they oh, buy, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what outings they're going to do in the afternoon, um, where you know, um, which fast food. Out that they yeah. like. So there's a tremendous amount of influence there. And I think a lot of big brands are just starting to realize that and think about, well, maybe I should have a kid's marketing strategy. Yeah. And so at that point, usually the lawyers come in and say, don't even go there.
0: But you can't, right. Exactly. Because Cop-
1: yeah. co- there's a law called COPPA, yep. and it's so hard, and y- y- you just don't even want to go there.
0: Yep. So you brought it up, let's go there. What is COPPA and what are the kind of the key provisions that, that
1: brands worry about the most? Um, so COPPA is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Okay? It's a 20-year-old law, 21 actually, exactly, mm-hmm. this month. Um, and it basically says don't collect personal information from kids yep. without the consent of their parents. Yep. That's at the heart of COPPA. Yep. It seeks to put parents back in control. Mm-hmm. Now, what COPPA did in 2012, when the law was slightly amended and it was expanded, was to put in place a very um, expansive definition of personal information. So it basically says, persistent identifiers, so those are things like IP addresses, a cookie ID, a device ID, or an advertising ID, may not be collected from kids Mm -hmm. under the age of 13, unless you have the consent of their parents. Now, in an advertising context, obtaining consent makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So what it means in practice is that you can't collect those things when advertising to kids. So a lot of people you know, at that point will say, oh my God, well, that means we can't advertise full stop. Well, that is not the case. And the FTC was very clear that that was not their intent. All it means is that you're not allowed to do behaviorally targeted advertising. So that means no interest-based ads, Uh, No retargeting, no remarketing, and no attribution. Mm -hmm. But you can do contextual advertising, um, and you can do lots of other ways of engaging kids so long as you avoid collecting those persistent identifiers. And that's really what caused us to start Super Awesome back in 2013, right after that rule change. Because we realized that if you use the existing advertising infrastructure, it's impossible to advertise to kids without picking up those identifiers. Because it was all designed with the adult market in mind. It was all designed to profile and to retarget and remarket. And so we essentially built our own ad server that delivers advertising in exactly the same ways everybody else does. It allows you to do the same kind of targeting from a geographic and demographic perspective, but it's all based on context. Got it. And it has all the same performance uh, reporting and all the same data that you would need uh, in order to ensure that your campaign is a success. And so that's what powers our marketplace. Got it. Um, so COPPA has, was probably the first data privacy law anywhere that was specifically targeted at children, but now we have essentially copies of COPPA appearing all over the world.
0: It's interesting to me that I did not understand that it was as much of a standard almost, or becoming a bit of a standard in other parts of the world. That's really that's really yes, interesting. Absolutely. Unlike frankly, the lack of standards in 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 the adult market, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a certainly more fluid, you know, between mm-hmm. the way the U.S. works and, and the way that Europe works.
1: And, and that has been helped along by some of the kids' brands themselves because even three, four years ago already, the big kids' brands like Lego or Mattel or Disney were already implementing that standard worldwide. Yep. right? Because it makes sense, right? They can't be seen to treat kids differently in right. one region versus <laughs> right. another. and so they, We they- only <laughs> exploit children in other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that so, doesn't work? Yeah. <laughs> Not if you're <laughs> conscious of your brand. <laughs> uh,
0: that was definitely handled. Man. Um, so, talk to me about the current state of play here in the U.S. market um, around privacy. You were just in Washington yesterday. Where Where are we in in regard to uh, any significant or material changes uh, in in legislation here in the
1: U.S. Uh, or or even on a state level? Obviously, the most prominent of those states that have taken matters into their own hands is California. Yep. Uh, the CCPA, which yep. is the new California Data Privacy Law, goes into effect January 1st. And it's pretty restrictive, and it will have a pretty significant impact on the digital advertising industry. For, from our perspective, the CCPA has some interesting provisions in relation to kids. So it essentially builds on COPPA, and it says, look, COPPA applies to under-13s, but we want to also protect 13- to 15-year-olds. And so it has special provisions. It essentially creates a new category, which is called a minor, Mm. which is not a child, not an adult. And in the case (laughs) of minors... (laughs) It's in the middle. Yes, all in between. uh, You might have one of those at home, I don't know. I I definitely have (laughs) one at home. (laughs) I do too. Um, And for minors, it basically says that before you share or sell their data, you must get their opt-in consent. Mm. Whereas for everyone else, it's an opt-out. And for under-13s, it's parental consent. So that creates a fair bit of complexity. It's severely limiting. We're still working through the practical implications, but essentially, from an advertiser's perspective or from the perspective of an app or a website that monetizes with advertising, they'll have to treat teenagers in the same way that they treat kids under COPPA today. They'll have to avoid allowing persistent identifiers to be collected and used for retargeting or behavioral advertising.
0: If at all, how have some of the political discussions... Uh, around big digital platforms, you know, your Facebooks and your Googles of the world. Um, you know, so Elizabeth Warren and some of her comp- comments on the comp- campaign trail and obviously certainly the, the the DOJ and some of their movements. Uh, how have those things impacted your business or, or have they not at this point?
1: I mean, the big impact on our business have been the two big COPPA fines that have come down. Mm. So this year has really been a record year yeah. for... FTC enforcement of COPPA. Uh, COPPA is a law that can only be enforced by the Federal Trade Commission or by the Attorneys General. Mm. And the FTC historically has not had a lot of capacity to bring actions. They've typically done between two and three a year, two yep. four a year. And the fines up until six months ago hardly ever exceeded a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, in March, the FTC fined TikTok $5.7 million. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge record for essentially collecting data from kids because they knew under 13s were there but they were pretending that there weren't any under 13s on the platform even though it was even though the whole platform the is everyone. Exactly. <laughs> is aimed at teenagers yeah that was followed by a long summer of negotiation with YouTube and yep. Google which resulted in by far the largest ever COPPA fine of $170 million, levied by a joint team of the FTC and the New York Attorney General. And that was a very interesting settlement because it really moved the goalposts on who is responsible for content on YouTube. The settlement essentially said, you know what, YouTube may be a platform that is general audience, But individual channels know who their audience is, and they should be treated as if they were websites in their own right. Mm. And so each individual channel has a responsibility to look after COPPA and to comply with COPPA. Um, But it does quite dramatically impact content creators on YouTube.
0: This is kind of an adjacent question, but I can't help but ask you because you spent a lot of your your whole career in this space or your whole current job in this space. One of the things that seems to me that's related to this is, you know, this issue of device usage, device limitations, you know, correlations to anxiety, depression, et cetera, in not just kid populations, all populations, but especially in in kid populations. Is that something that you think has the possibility of getting combined into some of these discussions around privacy? Is that there are sort of real health dynamics that are also associated with it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't see it within the privacy realm, but the next frontier, if you like, in regulatory action is definitely influenced by those reports and by what we can all see with our own eyes, which is that, you know, smartphone addiction, screen time has all gotten a bit out of control. Yep. And so... We're seeing that um, initially in the UK, which is actually probably the country that is furthest ahead, alongside China, actually, oddly enough. Mm. Uh, but the UK and China were the first countries. They do countries- tend to control a
0: few things, to be <laughs> yes.
1: fair. It's,
0: it's, in their, uh, it's in their institutional DNA.
1: Yes, and and uh, arguably China will actually be able to enforce these things sooner <laughs> than anybody else will, probably. <laughs> um, but what we're seeing in the UK is a number of initiatives led by the government to uh, create new design codes. Mm. So the Information Commissioner's Office, which is kind of the, 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 the regulatory authority for data privacy, is releasing something called the Age-Appropriate Design Code later mm. this year. And it's a pretty proactive uh, code that requires companies, by law, to design products with the best interests of children at heart. And that's a very broad principle under which the government can make some judgments and fine companies for not complying. It then talks very specifically about things like appropriate uh, screen time limitations, Mm -hmm. parental controls, avoiding the use of so-called nudge techniques to convince kids to lower their privacy settings.
0: And do you think that is uh, a place where you guys will... Participate in some way,
1: yeah. Because we, I mean, we our technology powers a lot of apps right. and websites. So we run authentication systems, parental consent workflows, uh, etc. And so, uh, increasingly, we have to build those concepts into our platforms. Yeah, um, we're currently talking to a lot of companies about a new kid tech standard, which is a set of principles that we think. All kids, developers and advertisers, and anyone in the ecosystem should and can get behind, uh, which covers things like data privacy, parental involvement, content moderation, and experience design, and takes from all of these different legislative initiatives sort of the best bits and combines it with what's actually operationally feasible today.
0: Broadly speaking, and we've we've covered this on the pub before, governmental populations are not especially versed in technology, which we, we we've seen certainly here in the States a number of times with some of these hearings which are mm-hmm. quite frankly difficult to watch. Yes. <laughs> um, how do you kind of work to engage and educate and influence those folks in a way that that makes some of this progress achievable?
1: That's a really good question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, right? I mean, it's, the it's, bottom line is it's hard.
1: It, it's hard. We have I think some useful experience in yeah. in teaching tech to lawyers, for example, through mm. the KidAware program. <laughs> so we have a lot of practice. Do you actually
0: have a program that's called that.
1: It's not called that, but okay. now that I've said it, I, I should use that. <laughs> think you need to rebrand. It's it. all part of our KidAware yes. education program. Teaching tech to lawyers, <laughs> <laughs> but because we it's a podcast, we, we spend yeah. a lot of time trying to find language that's easy to understand to explain ad tech to lay people, yeah. we can reuse a lot of that. Um, and in fact, we did a little bit of that on Monday. Uh, my colleague, Cato Lachlan, was on a panel with the FTC uh, uh, group, and it was a panel about persistent identifiers. Mm. So pretty technical from the get-go. Yep. But not everybody in the audience really was technical. And so she often turned to the audience to say, look, this is, this is, what, this what, is. what this is. Yep. This is how it works. Yep. And so we, we just have to keep trying to do that. Yeah, But uh, yeah, that's a problem. And
0: as you noted, there are some global governments that are better at this than others
1: they're better at the moment at focusing on it yeah I'll reserve my my judgment education. until they a- until they actually implement stuff and then how they enforce it Fa- fair enough yeah, Fair
0: enough yeah. um, so let's talk about the future a little bit uh, over the next 18 24 months are there significant things um, that you would sort of caution marketers uh, or brands to look out for on the on the privacy front
1: well I think you know if you follow the trends of enforcement in the US and of legal risks in the US so it's COPPA enforcement on the one hand, but there's Mm. also uh, civil lawsuits Mm -hmm. and civil litigation. Um, You can't file a civil lawsuit under COPPA directly, but what we've seen increasingly is uh, you can file a lawsuit under state privacy laws, and then you can cite COPPA as the standard. Mm. Uh, So we saw that in 2017 with a volley of lawsuits against uh, the makers of several apps and games, um, and we're seeing more and more activity there. This, the, the common trend across both of those is that they started out at the content level, so in other words, the publisher side, yep. because that's where COPPA applies most directly. Yes, They then moved up into the ad tech stack with a number of ad tech vendors being named as co-defendants in lawsuits. And then it went up into the exchange with the New York Attorney General's uh, fine against Oath back in December, which mm-hmm. was a million dollar fine under COPPA yep. uh, because they were trading kids' inventory in an illegal way. And so you can see the direction of travel here yeah. is getting closer to the agency, it's getting closer to the brand, it's getting closer to the DSP. And so we think that the, the focus of the regulators is going to be increasingly on holding the brands and the instructions they give to their ad tech ecosystem also responsible for inclusive, the data collection that happens. of
0: their agents.
1: I think so. Mm. Um, so that's something that we would, well, that we would grim, keep an Max. eye on. <laughs> just thought, just thought like, come coming here and make your day. <laughs> I, that, that's
0: grim. Uh, I understood there'd be no accountability. <laughs> so uh, that's really fascinating. I think yeah. it's, a, and it's a really powerful observation, obviously, with a lot of implications. Let me ask you this. In the, in the Google example, as part of that settlement, did they somehow limit civil exposure? Do they still have a civil exposure on that front or... or or would they, or was it strictly sort of a regulatory compliance exposure?
1: The settlement did not limit their civil exposure in any mm-hmm. way, and it did not inoculate them in any way from anything outside of what the FTC does. So I think I think so. Google in theory,
0: if some lawyer decided they wanted to aggregate, you know, uh, kids who had seen. They, 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 I, they, I believe there are, harmed. in fact, some
1: lawsuits pending still from, from last year um, that essentially uh, accuse YouTube of collecting personal information from kids. Um, so there's definitely one filed last year, and I think it's still going. Interesting. And that was not affected by the settlement, as far as I know.
0: Mm. Wow, well, that's upbeat for them, too. Okay, <laughs> what's the one thing that people aren't talking about in our industry around these topics that they should be?
1: I mean, I think, I think what people aren't talking about, and we're going to try and make them talk about a bit more going forward, is why do we need all those persistent identifiers? It's kind of a nerdy thing to say. Mm. Um, but we have so gotten used to, everything has to have an IP address or a cookie ID yep. or a device ID attached to it. And actually, most of the time, it's not necessary. And I'm I'm not not saying that profiling doesn't have value and behavioral advertising doesn't have value. It does. And for those purposes and for retargeting and so on, then you do need that. But I reckon that 95% of them, those that are collected, are never actually used for one of those things. They just get dumped into some database and never really used or not used well in any case. And if you think about our infrastructure from that perspective, as I suspect eventually the legislators will when they finally get their head around it. Um, In in Europe, they've kind of started to do that. Um, Then people will realize, you know what, we can actually build a highly functioning web infrastructure that doesn't need all those unique identifiers. I don't need to know every moment where you are, and I don't need to attach that to every ad impression. Um, so I think I think that that will require a bit of a cultural shift.
0: That is a cultural shift. I can tell you that right now,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but well, I do think it's coming.
0: I, would, wouldn't the answer? And I'm I'm strictly playing devil's advocate here. Yep. Wouldn't the answer back to you be, in effect, we quote unquote need this to answer the promise of making every channel addressable in the future, such that you know first party data is. We can we can turn any channel into a customer oriented channel, mm-hmm. a CRM like mm-hmm. channel in terms of the depth and robustness of offer type and relevance, yeah. etc. Would that be the answer you would expect to get? Well, I, I want to support that.
1: I, I think yeah. that, I think that's a, a worthwhile goal. Yeah, um, but you aren't doing it today. Why not?
0: I, I think the answer is because we haven't sorted yeah. it yet. Like we still, yeah. right? We still, and again, I'm you know a little out of my depth here, but. Identity is still a problem, right? We still aren't good enough on identity to drive the level of maybe requirement or expectation that you might want from a true, you know, CRM or customer Mm -hmm. knowledge program, if that makes sense, right? In the old world, I had a very high probability of being accurate if I were delivering your, you know, 1K mileage rewards pack with your specific number of miles in it to your home. If I'm trying to do that in addressable TV right now, as an example, like turning addressable TV into a channel in which I could receive a CRM communication, I don't think we have that level of yeah. sophistication or accuracy, I yeah. guess is my yeah. point.
1: Uh, I agree with And again, that. I'm like
0: yeah. defending something that I don't necessarily know that I agree with either, but I, I think that might be the argument.
1: I think we need to solve for identity. But I think we need to solve for it by coming up with a better way of doing it. Well, I think we. And if we put that all completely. that effort, yeah. if we put all the effort that currently goes into just hoovering up random identifiers yeah. into figuring out the one way to solve this in yeah. a somewhat privacy-friendly way across all channels, well, I agree then we that. could solve that. I agree I with think. that. And I, and again, if you look at some of the work that we do
0: internally here with some of our technology, um, I think. The spirit of that is is, mm. is what we, the 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 trick is. The industry really does not have any kind of
1: yeah.
0: uh, standard mm. um, uh, in identity. You know, an identity standard would would really change. A heavily adopted, pervasive identity standard would mm-hmm. be a, a significant step in the right direction.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, awesome. So let us jump into uh, the lightning round. Are you ready?
1: Okay, I'm uh, ready. I think.
0: <laughs> don't don't get too excited, <laughs> Max. All right. So uh, favorite digital experience could be uh, application web experience. Could be you know an out of home experience you particularly liked if it were digitally driven. Um, anything in that zone.
1: Um podcasts <laughs> <laughs> I
0: love it I love it there's a there's a vote for audio do you have a favorite platform and a favorite audio platform
1: I use overcast overcast mm-hmm.
0: oh interesting and why
1: it works really well okay um, I haven't tried out many of them that's <laughs> okay. probably the second one I tried and I stuck with it
0: now are you a big music audio person or no no
1: I listen almost exclusively to talking podcasts interesting yeah. that's interesting
0: Best piece of content recently consumed book, movie, Netflix series, uh, podcast, anything? Uh, Chernobyl. So good. Mm. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was as good a television series, you know, mini series as I have ever seen.
1: And it really felt, uh, it felt very, Close to me because at the time that that occurred, I was in boarding school in Austria. Yeah, um, and we—I w- remember it very well because they suddenly took away the milk. They took away the cheese. Yeah, they, they had, to, we had to change our diet. You know, there was like real fear about it. Was it. Crazy. It, was, it was impacting that region. Yeah, and then about five, six years later, uh, when I was uh, in my, one of my first jobs, I was a journalist. Uh, my Former life, uh, I worked in Russia, and so I spent quite a bit uh-huh. of time—not too too long after that—in both Russia and in Belarus, where it happened. Yeah, um, and so I recognize the the scenery mm. and the and the sets, which are so spectacularly good. Yes, uh, and it really feels and looks exactly like that. And so that that made it come even more alive for me.
0: It's funny that you should say that it struck such a personal note for you uh it definitely did for me as well um one is i remember obviously the incident from being uh in in high school i just remember the news of it um but i happened to grow up in a uh hershey pennsylvania which is about seven miles uh, maybe not even five miles from three mile island and so uh i uniquely and specifically and vividly remember um the day of the accident and you know everybody freaking out at school we were in school at the time and parents coming to pick people up and you know everybody trying to count what kid went where and i'm going to take you know sally home because they're my neighbor and all that there was no plan that it was you know this is 1979 Mm -hmm. in central pennsylvania Mm -hmm. there was no plan um And in fact, they made us sit under our desks. That was the reaction. (laughs) Imminent imminent nuclear meltdown. You know, again, 4.8 miles away, and we are sitting under our desks. Um, I'm glad you said that. I love that. There we go. That's your paid uh, advertisement for Chernobyl. Uh, Best piece of career advice you've either given or received?
1: Be nice. I know it's really... uh, brief.
0: Yeah, somebody you know said what? that
1: to me if, uh, about 10 years ago. Right? Actually, you know why it was so relevant is because it was said to me it wasn't 10 years ago, it was more 20 years ago. It was right during the first internet boom when shit got really crazy, when greed went nuts yeah. like summer of 2000, spring of 2000, sure. 99-2000. And you know, I was working in investment banking at the time. So mm. it was ruthless out there. Yeah. And I was still young and impressionable and I was seeing the partners with their ruthless approach. And some a, a partner in a different part of the business was observing this, and he's the one that came over and said to mm-hmm. me, you know, look, these guys will come and go. Mm. Economic times will come and go. But you just be nice throughout, yeah. and you'll make longer-term, better business decisions. Mm. And, and I think that was a good point in time to be saying that, because I've met a lot of assholes along the way.
0: I tell you what, uh, that's as good a piece of advice uh, as we've as we've had. I, I, I think you're exactly right. I mean... You see it all the time in in any industry, uh, and, and you know it's funny. It's the one thing that we all talk about out of the meeting. You go out of the meeting, and what's the first thing you talk about? You oh, know, that like, guy was nice. That guy was that guy was a good guy, or you know, she mm-hmm. was fantastic. Or conversely, you're like they were a real jerk. Like that. That is the. It's the first thing you talk about when you leave the room. It's almost like, what's your self-filter for, like, what are people going to say about me when I leave this meeting? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great point. You are based in London. Yes. Okay. Do you have a favorite football club? (laughs)
1: Um, No. I was going to tell you about my local football club. I love it. Tell me. um, But I I genuinely can't remember what it's called. (laughs) That's how, how not <laughs> into football I am. Got it. Now, do you have a sport that you like? No. We, now, we, we do have a, a, a local football club. Hang on. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you that story because it's a funny story. Okay. Um, they are the Queen's Park Rangers.
0: Oh, QPR. Sure.
1: QPR. Sure. See, that's, that's what everybody knows about football sets. <laughs> um, but... Um, uh, a few years ago, I've my, been there. A few years ago, my wife was at a dinner party, and she ended up sitting next to a very famous footballer. Okay. she had no idea who it was right. at the time, and they started talking. and He's like, "Hey, you know, do you like football?" And she's like, "Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I support my local team." Uh, and he says, "Oh yeah, which who's that? Who's your local team?" And she said, uh, "QVC." <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, do you have a sport that you
1: do follow? I follow tennis, Formula oh, okay. One skiing. Okay. So sort the of slightly weird things.
0: Well, it's I would call that that's in the European, you know yes. uh, uh- <laughs> uh, sort of gestalt of sports, the, the <laughs> yes. whole, uh, you know, F1 uh, motorcycle race. Like every time I'm over yeah. there, I see stuff. I'm like, hey, I guess people yeah. watch this yeah. stuff. It's on, Yeah, uh, yeah you yeah. know, the guy's going down on one knee on the motorcycle. I'm like, who is actually watching <laughs> these people do this? Um, awesome. Max, I can't thank you enough. I know it was short notice. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: It was a pleasure. It was really nice to meet you and to hang out here for a bit.
0: Uh, I tell you what, we'd love to have you back. I would love to be back. All right, perfect. Thanks, Max. Thanks. So that does it for another episode of The Human Element. Please remember to find us anywhere you find your pods. And if you're so motivated, give us a like or subscribe, Jason. It's subscribe. It's free to subscribe this week, isn't it true? Right. all week long. That's right. <laughs> That's right. No interest payments till 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you real soon. Bye-bye.